today, so that means it is time for another Cardinals Off Day podcast. I am Ben Godar, here as always with my good friend, Ben Humphrey. Ben, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, the Cardinals uh, have, you know, slowed down a little bit, but they're still maintaining a pretty healthy lead in the NL Central. And Albert Pujols, of course, is closing in on 700 home runs. Uh, so things are going pretty well. Yeah, it's one of those seasons that's going so well that even if something slows down a little bit or, you know, somebody's performance uh, flags a little, uh, you, you really feel like uh, <laughs> you, you, you're asking too much to, to, to complain. Pretty pretty grateful for where we're at. Um, and Ben, we're, uh, we've got a more intense collection of off days here kind of at the end of the season again. So, um, you know, it's only been about a week since uh, we checked in with folks. But in that time, uh, what have you learned? Um, I have learned that the St. Louis Cardinals front office uh, did a very good job of assessing how much production players with questionable health would give down the home stretch. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, of course, they traded Harrison Bader for Jordan Montgomery, uh, and Bader uh, is, uh, you know, has not pitched. Uh, or excuse me, has not pitched, has not played for the Yankees uh, in the majors, but was on a rehab stint. Uh, and and I, I think they would settle for him pitching at this point. I think they'd take yeah. any contribution they could get. So obviously Harrison Bader has not done much for the Yankees, and he would not have done much for the Cardinals because of the nature of his injury. And I think there's an open question uh, because of how bad it has been of whether the skill set that makes him valuable uh, will be there for him in the way that it has been in the past. And then the Yankees, I could have just as easily said, Ben, that the Yankees did a poor job of assessing injury risk. Uh, well, because, what's, what, what we read about Frankie Montas as well. Yeah, so Frankie Montas now, uh, his shoulder is barking again uh, as we get to the home stretch leading into the postseason. And so the Cardinals were tied to him in rumors and ultimately passed, but the Yankees closed the deal. And it looks like the Cardinals front office uh, made the better choice with respect to both of the, both of those players. Yeah. Um, presumably the Yankees have someone in their front office whose job it is to look at the medicals when they're acquiring someone. And um, they should probably fire that person <laughs> because <laughs> they have not done a good job. Uh, you know, Ben, it's George, it's George Costanza. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, he's got a lot of other good ideas though. So uh uh, you know, Ben, one thing that I have learned here kind of in the closing days of the season, at least at this time of year, uh, Ollie likes the defensive closer. Have you noticed this? Uh, I have noticed this and I and I really like to see it. Yeah. You know, I, I I'll be honest, I'm sometimes I'm mixed on it. Um, I know uh, I, I, I think I have a bad taste in my mouth from uh, I feel like Mike Matheny taking Matt Holiday out of approximately 200 games um, where then Matt Holiday came up in a crucial situation or his spot came up and um, you know, there was, it was like the pitcher spot at that point or something like that. And, and things went South, but you know, Ollie uses it pretty well. Um, but we've just, we're seeing a lot in the eighth, ninth innings. We're seeing Deluzio coming in in center. We're seeing DeYoung and Edmund becoming the, um, the up the middle, which is, you know, clearly their, you know, the preferred defensive alignment there. Um, and so even when the Cardinals are only getting maybe a one run lead, we're seeing him go to that, you know, that defensive closer alignment. And, you know, really the way Gallegos and Helsley are pitching, 
you know, why not? Seems like a pretty good, pretty good place. So that's been interesting to me. Um, and also it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, Deluzio is a guy I really thought was just coming up, um, you know, as a really brief kind of bridge fill in guy. Um, and I don't frankly expect we're going to see him on a playoff roster, but you know, he, he has carved out, a a small but significant spot for himself. Um, and that's one of the places he's doing it. Yeah. And, uh, when, they're doing this type of alignment. Uh, the person that I am reminded of, uh, Ben, is Bill Buckner, uh, who had uh, injury issues and then, of course, had the famous error that cost the Red Sox against the Mets in the World Series. And so, um, but but I also am- caught a baby falling from a burning building. It's important to remind folks of that as well. Yes, so. yes. Um, so, but but the whole thing. Um, you know, it, it reminds me of that and putting yourself in a position as a team. Uh, really, it's almost like going into a prevent defense if you're a football team, uh, yep. which, of course, has its drawbacks. And so does bringing in the gloves uh, yep. late in the game because you lose some of the pop in the lineup. But you don't have to score again to win. And preventing the other team from scoring is the highest priority. And that seems to be the way. Uh, that Marmol is leaning, and I like to see it. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, and and um, it's definitely definitely a, a tactic we're seeing used more now, and in a different way than we have for a while. So, um, coming up, uh, we've got some uh, really interesting topics. I think we're going to hit on today. We're going to talk about some of the um, injuries and the associated moves with that. We're going to talk about pitching development, the Arizona Fall League. We're going to answer your questions. But before we get to that, uh, Ben, we, we have a sponsor this week. It's been a couple weeks since we had a sponsor, but um, we uh, we do have one. So let me grab the sheet here. Okay. I'll just read this. Uh, this episode of Cardinals Off Day is brought to you by Quad A Equipment. Look, we know it's tough to be a minor league ball player, but you still need to look your best. Look to Quad A Equipment for authentic major league helmets, uniform separates, jock straps, and more. We source our products directly from the clubhouses and laundry facilities of major league spring training camps. Who's that sharp looking player whose pants don't quite match his jersey? That's a Quad A player. And thank you to Quad A Equipment and all of our sponsors. Yeah, they're they're really nice. Uh, you know, if you can't really afford something that's quite good enough to be top of the line, and and so they, I find that they're within my budget. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's that's really what it's all about. So, with that, Ben, uh, let's let's dive in. And our our first main topic we wanted to hit on are um, some of the the recent roster moves, all of which are kind of injury injury related. So, we had Tyler O'Neill and Jordan Hicks. Going on the disabled list, uh, we had Dylan Carlson and Steven Matz coming off the disabled list. And in both cases, Carlson and Matz uh, apparently uh, making a last-minute drive from Des Moines to St. Louis. And uh, Ben and I have a lot of sympathy for that because I know you and I have made that drive many times. Yeah, it's not fun, and it's pretty much six hours. Like, it's difficult to trim much off of that trip. Yeah, I, I saw some of the reporting that kept saying the five-hour drive, and I, I was like, yeah, they're going to have to show me this route they're taking that's getting them there in five five hours. But, uh, um, you know, they who knows? They, they are major league uh, players. Maybe they have a, a supercar and we're, you know, going 200 or something like that. Um, 
But uh, as much as I'd like to get into a, a deep dive on the you know best rest stops to take a piss between Des Moines and St. Louis, I feel like maybe our listeners would have more interest in what we think um, just from kind of a, a team perspective. So, Ben, what, what are your thoughts as, as these moves have, uh, and injuries have happened? Well, I, I think we all expected Dylan Carlson to be back uh, sooner or later. Uh, the nature of his injury didn't sound too severe. Um, but it sounded like the type of injury that, that can be nagging and needed rest. And so uh, he's looked pretty good uh, in the limited action since coming back. And you really hope that uh, he is healed up and ready to go for the home stretch and the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steven Matz, Ben, we got to see live and in person in AAA earlier in the week before we- they acted him and he looked great yeah we we got to see him for about 90 seconds (laughs) and about 10 seconds of that was doing a major league strut after striking out the leadoff hitter um uh he he went right after the hitters and was just like attack 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 and was not messing around i mean he looked like a man on a mission coming in in relief and he looked pretty similar uh against the reds yeah, he really did. And Matt's is a guy I'm I'm excited to have back and excited to see what he can do in a in a bullpen role. Um, you know, because I, I know, you know, Matt's, I feel like as the, the sort of big free agent pitching acquisition of the offseason, there is maybe uh, collectively as a fan base, we're a little underwhelmed. Of course, we got Dr. Thunder when, uh, you know, we wanted Dr. Pepper. Uh, you know, Matt's is not like a you know, number one ace type starter, but Matt's is a very good starter. And it's important to remember that guys who pitch in the bullpen are failed starters. <laughs> so if you have somebody who's even a, just a pretty good uh, starter, uh, potentially uh, they can, they can, you know, do some really good work for you in the bullpen. And, you know, as we've talked about before, the Cardinals, uh, Gallegos and Helsley really locked down at the end of that bullpen. But beyond that, you know, question marks and, you know, not a lot of certainty. You feel pretty good about uh, effective Steven Matz taking an inning or two, um, you know, when he can in that bullpen. Yes, and especially uh, with the other options yeah. um, and, and some of the question marks there. Uh, I think this is kind of a fortuitous development because I, I did not expect him to pitch again this year. And so it looked like the Cardinals would be stuck with the left-handed relief options that they had. Um, And with Cabrera, the bottom kind of falling out on him. Though, to be fair, he looked pretty good when we saw him the other night in Memphis as well. And and good enough where you notice that he looks like a major league talent pitching to AAA pitchers. Um, And so maybe he might have turned things around mentally or mechanically or whatever he needed to do. Uh, away from the majors. But with Matt's joining the team, I, I think it makes the bullpen much stronger because their number one left-handed relief option, you don't really have to worry about him facing right-handed pitchers uh, and and even the heart of the order type right-handed, or right-handed batters or heart of the order type right-handed batters. And so uh, I think it could be he could be a very, very valuable tool for Ollie Marmol in the postseason. Yeah, and so let's let's flip it and talk about the the two guys who went away. So Tyler O'Neill has, uh, I believe it was a grade one uh, uh, quad strain, um, is uh, is what uh, 
uh, what he was dealing with and uh, Hicks. I believe it was reported as neck spasms and arm soreness. Um, am I, is that, was that your understanding as well, Ben? Yeah, the, the Hicks description uh, seemed pretty weird to me. Uh, what did you think about it? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, I mean, arm soreness is always one that can kind of be code for we're going to give him some rest. Um, uh, neck spasms... You know, it, it's hard to say because I feel like that's also one that can be kind of in that we're going to give him some rest, but it's also an actual thing that someone can be, you know, can be kind of dealing with. So I guess my hope is maybe maybe they just felt like, you know, he needed some rest. And we know that's been just something they've been trying to figure out with him really for his whole career is what is the best combination of you know, kind of rest and usage um, to help, you know, help him stay healthy. Obviously, he has some unique health challenges. Um so that's what you hope it is. At the same time, anytime you hear two things combined, um, you know, I mean, if two parts are legitimately hurting, it makes me, you know, maybe less optimistic that he might return. Um, and O'Neill, you know, the grade one is like, well, that's not as as severe, but, um, you know, especially on Tyler O'Neill, that's a pretty big muscle to, <laughs> to strain. <laughs> yeah. And it also, the, the O'Neill hamstring strain it seems like he gets a lot of little i don't want to uh, minimize an injury but he seems to get a lot of little tweaks like this yeah um where he needs to go spend 10 days on the il and then he comes back and yeah. so uh, i'm hoping that it's just something like that where the team because of where they are in in part because of where they are in the standings and looking to the postseason they're maybe saying, hey, you know what? We aren't going to mess around with this. Yeah. Get him on the IL, get him rested, get someone in who's uh, back up here who's 100% healthy, and we'll we'll figure out the outfield alignment, let him get the rest he needs, and then he'll be ready to go for the postseason. Because uh, with the way he's been hitting of late, you know, he really uh, adds depth to that lineup yeah. uh, and is, you know, a very valuable player for this club. So hopefully – uh, he doesn't need much longer than the, the minimum amount of time on the IL. Yeah, I agree. And I know, I think I only saw one kind of round of comments from the front office and I, I saw, you know, through a reporter, you know, and I believe it said that they, they hope O'Neill can return before the end of the season. So I'm not even certain if that meant the end of the regular season or, you know, or the postseason. but, but I'm with you. I mean, at this point, yeah, if, if it's, if we're just talking about the regular season and it's, it's as much giving him rest as anything else, you know, I'd say absolutely. But yeah, you, you'd really like to have him back in the mix, you know, for the postseason. That said, if, if we have to forecast a postseason where, you know, uh, in a worst case scenario where we're with, without both of these guys, you know, with Tyler O'Neill, I feel like it's hard to really say how how serious of a loss is that because it's, it's like a thought exercise. What you know, what version of Tyler O'Neill are you picturing in your mind, you know, when, when the Cardinals are without him, um, you know, because, you know, you've got the like, uh, you know, got MVP votes version of Tyler O'Neill from the second half of last season, you know, but we've also seen, you know, just very long stretches of, uh, you know, fine, but just much more pedestrian uh, Tyler O'Neill that you certainly don't feel like you're taking much of an overall step down by having, you know, say Brendan Donovan out there. Yeah, especially against right-handed pitching. Yeah, I you know if if the option is Brendan Donovan or or Tyler O'Neill, 
I mean, O'Neill has a lot more damage potential, um, but he also has a lot more swing and miss potential. And so I, I think the, the difference maker, though, would be the defense because he brings yeah. value, uh, that, that very good defense uh, to a corner outfield spot or center field. His, his defense is good enough that he can play center field. And so uh, he's a very useful player uh, for the team and uh, when he is healthy and everything's clicking. And so, you know, we'll see if he can make it back and get some plate appearances in. Uh, before the postseason. Yeah, you know, and similarly, I mean, uh, you know, Jordan Hicks obviously started the season kind of as a rotation experiment, moved back into the bullpen, hasn't established himself as a, you know, bona fide, you know, back end of the rotation type guy. And, you know, frankly, his his outings tend to be erratic, um, you know, the, some excellent outings, some very poor outings. But still, Jordan Hicks, if you're baking out a postseason roster, you know, he's absolutely good enough to be one of those guys in your bullpen. So you hope that he's healthy because, you know, if he's not, then you're probably carrying a, a, a Woodford, a Packy Naughton, uh, you know, some of these guys that are probably on, on the fringe. Yeah, and with the failed experiment uh, putting Hicks in the rotation, um, I think it's sort of warped our perception of him as fans when it comes to relief. And uh, folks who follow me on Twitter, you know, I have tweeted this out a little bit. Um, but this year, Hicks has pitched uh, quite well uh, in relief. Um, he's held opponents down in, in the result area and uh, has really come through and, and has, in fact, pitched uh, as well as we have seen him pitch and probably even better. Um, you know, he has cut his walk rate. It's still too high. Uh, don't get me wrong, but he's cut his walk rate from 17 and a half percent to 10.1% in relief. He's increased his K rate about the same number of percentage points from 20.8 as a starter to 27 and a half as a reliever and fielding independent pitching is based on strikeouts, walks and home runs allowed. As a starter, his was 5.65, which is terrible. And as a reliever, it's 3.05, which is very good. Yeah. And so uh, he has been a very good reliever for the Cardinals since moving back into the bullpen. And so you hope that he's not dealing with anything major and will be able to come back and be a, a useful weapon out of the bullpen. Yeah, and as long as we're talking about a pitcher developed in the St. Louis Cardinals system, uh, what a perfect segue into our next topic, which is something I think we've kind of touched on before, and I know you and I have talked about, but we wanted to dive in a little bit more too. And we actually had a question related to this uh, that came in as well. Matthew Durst asked, why are the cards bad at developing starting pitching? It seems like they routinely put out above replacement level position players, but pitching seems weaker and they need to trade for starting pitching every year. Do we trade away pitching prospects earlier in the pipeline more regularly? Um, so a couple things I just kind of wanted to lay out as, as uh, you know, some groundwork before we really dive into this, Ben. And first off, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that it's incredibly hard to measure what we would call player development just overall for so many reasons. For one thing, we're always talking about an extremely small sample size. You know, there's only 
a, a small number of individual players in the pipeline at a given time. And particularly when we're thinking about the, the, the real kind of legitimate like prospect type players who we expect to develop into major leaguers. Um, there's all kinds of outside factors, um, uh, you know, injuries and just physical things that can happen that have nothing to do with what an organization does. You know, on top of that, players do development outside of the organization. Lars Newbar was a great example of that for the, you know, the work that he did at Driveline to, you know, to help him with his hitting. So there are a whole bunch of things that I feel like it makes it really hard to just say this organization's good at development, this organization's bad at development. That said, I think we have enough track record over the last several years now to say it really looks like the Cardinals are pretty bad at, at developing uh, pitching. And I just today I was just kind of comparing them with the Brewers, who I think we all know are pretty good at pitching. You know, but the Brewers have, uh, you know, in, just in their rotation, uh, you've got Corbin Burns, who was a fourth round pick. You got Brandon Woodruff, who was an 11th round pick. Um, other kind of high quality guys that they've had, you had Freddie Peralta, Adrian Hauser. Those were guys that they didn't draft, but were acquired as minor leaguers. So those are still products of their system. You've got a guy like Devin Williams. Um, you know, that's, you know, that's pretty impressive. When you go to the Cardinals, Jack Flaherty is really the only, you know, uh, frontline starting pitcher that this team has, has successfully developed. He was drafted in 2014. And he's the only guy since then that really fits that definition. So uh, to me, it's pretty clear that the Cardinals pitching development is lacking. Would, would you agree? I agree. And I have a pop quiz for you, Ben. I will take your pop quiz. All right. Uh, and just this is a very quick and dirty way of gauging how well a team has drafted, developed major league starting pitching. Okay. So what I did, I have just chosen the last 10 seasons from 2013 to 2022. And we're going to use fan graphs, war, which is based on strikeouts, walks and home runs allowed, but then also innings pitched just so everyone <clears throat> Uh, and, and understands kind of the, the basis of that wins above replacement for pitchers. So I have the, the top 10 uh, wins above replacement for the Cardinals from 2013 to 2022 as starting pitchers. Uh, ben, who do you think is number one on that? Okay, so be clear, this isn't just guys they develop. This is all pitchers who have pitched for the organization. Uh, yes, all guys who have pitched for the organization. Who do you think is number one on that list? Uh, Adam Wainwright. Very good. Who do you think is number two? Uh, Carlos Martinez. Very good. Number three. Um, number three. Jack Flaherty. No, Lance Lynn. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, number four. Uh, are we at Flaherty there? No, Michael Waka is number four. Okay. See, I have trouble in my mind remembering like 2013, like remembering exactly how far back that was and who was still on the team. Right. But I even went this far back because I'm like, well, I want to give them, you know what I mean? Like I want to yeah. get that that crop uh, that kind of predated the Matheny, the, the crop of draft picks, I guess, uh, that made their debut kind of in the Matheny era. I sure. probably should have gotten back to 2012 because... Uh, but but I didn't. But at any rate, uh, that's where we are. Waka is four. So Wainwright one, Martinez two, Lynn three, Waka four. Who do you think is fifth? 
You know, I've been guessing Flaherty, um, uh, so I'm going to stick with Flaherty. Uh, and you would be wrong because it's Miles Michaelis. Miles Michaelis was my next guess. Yep. Uh, number six, I, I think you'll get this one right, Mr. Godar. Uh, is it Jordan Hicks? No, is it Jack Flaherty? <laughs> yes. Number six is Jack Flaherty. Uh, number seven. Oh, man, see, the, remembering guys that were on the team is not my forte. Um, is it still a starter? Yes, it's still a starter. These are all starting pitchers, so this is still okay. a starter, and okay. he is a he is definitely a blast from the past. Oh, gosh, uh, John Lackey. It's Jaime Garcia. Oh, okay. See, see uh, again. That's one. It's like, gosh, how long was Jaime around? So, <laughs> and I, I don't think there is any way you will guess number eight because I would have never guessed uh, number eight. Oh well, I'll, then I'm not even going to try, Ben. Who is it? It's Mike Leak. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. He was around. I mean, you know, he put in some time. Uh, and then number nine is Shelby Miller. Yeah. And then uh, we get to number ten, who is Dakota Hudson. And so I, I think that that list right there really illustrates how much of a gap we have, where you know half of these guys aren't with the organization anymore, or more than half, and. Hardly any of them are players that the Cardinals drafted uh, within the last like 10 years. And yeah, so- and, it, and it's not like they haven't taken shots. You know, Flaherty was a 2014, uh, 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 I'm pretty sure he was a first round pick. Um, 2015, Jake Woodford was a first round pick. He was a compensation round, but still, you know, in the end of the first round there. 2016, Dakota Hudson was a first-round pick. Um, 2019, Zach Thompson was a first-round pick. Now, Thompson, 2019 wasn't that long ago. He's he's you know still kind of developing, but yeah, I mean, we're just you're not seeing guys emerge. No, it seems like they have taken a step back, um, and I know that they got rid of Lilliquist uh, seemingly because they wanted to become a little bit more. Uh, in the 21st century in terms of pitching coach approach and how they're using data and those types of things. Um, but under Lilliquist, I think it's, it's inarguable that they had success breaking pitchers into the majors and starters into the majors. And now under Mike Maddox, it almost feels Ben like we've gone back to kind of the, the Dave Duncan era where they seemed to have more, experience with retreads and signing veterans off the scrap heap than they did drafting and developing pitchers. Well, I I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying, but I also, to me, this problem is, is there in the minor leagues as well. It's not just uh, when they get to Mike Maddox problem. And one thing that I looked at today, you know, I thought back to our season preview um, uh, episode or kind of minor league preview when we talked to Kyle before the season started about some of the pitchers in the minor leagues who we expected might, um, you know, develop this year. Um, You know, in some of these cases, maybe even make their way to the big leagues, but definitely like really develop, maybe jump a level. Um, Matthew Libertor has a 4.77 FIP in AAA. His walks are up. Uh, Michael McGreevy, 4.91 FIP in AA. His strikeouts are down. His walks are up. Gordon Graceffo, he's better. He moved from high A to double A. Um, numbers in double A haven't been great, but he moved up a level. So I think you'd have to call that progress. 
Uh, Connor Thomas, who, who I saw in Des Moines this week and did not look great. Um, he's got a 4.34 FIP in, in AAA. His, his strikeouts uh, are down. Um, you know, he's been slightly worse in his second season of, of AAA. And again, like I talked about, it's a challenge. It's always anecdotal. Those are all individual cases. There are other factors with, you know, with each of those guys, right? So there, there could be a narrative there, but collectively it's like, who in this system has taken a step forward this season uh, as a pitcher? Uh, you know, maybe Tink hence. Yeah. But we don't really know what would we don't have a very good idea of what constitutes a step forward for him. Well, and he's also this is the first year that he's pitching at a level where yes. we're seeing measurable results. Yes, exactly. So we're kind of flying in the in the dark there on what would be considered good for him. So yeah. it, it's really hard to argue that any player uh, who is a starting pitcher in the Cardinals organization uh, who uh, was thought highly of at the beginning of the year um, relative to his peers in the organization has had a, a better season this year than anticipated. I think uh, Graceffo is probably the the one at the top of that list as, as you uh, detailed there. Yeah. And, and, you know, Matthew Libertor at this point in time is really looking like, you know, he might, he might be a dud. I don't know what his role is. I don't know what his profile looks like or what the team even thinks his profile looks like as a major league starter. And that's a little bit concerning when you're giving up uh, quality players and uh, going out and acquiring uh, a pitcher like that who before he joined the organization was highly rated. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, I think it's just concerning overall, um, just to, you know, to, to not be able to point to many, if, if any success stories for pitchers, um, in your system, um, you know, relative to what your expectations were, were for them. So, um, maybe, maybe they need a, a Jeff Albert type on the pitching side, Ben. Yeah. Well, and I think that's probably, you know, we, we know that they were a little late to the game in terms of the pitching lab and some of the data. And, and so I think the hope is just that they were a little late to the game on that and they're playing catch up, but they'll get there. But, uh, you know, we'll have to, time will tell. Um, but speaking of prospects and development, um, one thing we did learn this week was who the Cardinals would be sending to the Arizona Fall League. And that list of players is outfielder Jordan Walker, shortstop Mason Wynn, Right-handed pitcher Tink Hentz, pitcher Kyle Leahy, pitcher Ryan Laudis, pitcher Connor Thomas, and catcher Pedro Pajes. I guess uh, Mike Antico, an outfielder, is on the taxi squad. Uh, ben, I know we got a question about this a, a show or two ago, and we said particularly with the fact that the AAA season was going to extend a month longer than the regular season this year, we really had no idea what the Cardinals would do because certainly Walker of this list and well, Thomas has been at AAA anyway, um, you know, could have been guys that were just going to, you know, play at AAA, et cetera. We didn't really know what to expect now that we've seen what the Cardinals have done. Uh, what do you think of it? Um, I think if I lived in Arizona, I would be buying a few tickets because there <laughs> are uh, some really dynamite prospects on this list. I mean, if you get to go out and see, Walker, Wynn, and Henson a game, uh, I would strongly encourage you to get out and do that. It also seems uh, like in the case of Hens, you know, they want to get him some more innings, build up that innings total. 
Uh, Connor Thomas kind of surprised me because, uh, you know, he's had a pretty full season in triple yeah. a and he could continue to pitch in triple a. Um, so I, I would be interested to know what the thought process there is. Um, and I, I think Pajes is, uh, you know, an interesting name as well. Uh, as we look to next year mm-hmm. uh, and the catcher depth chart within the organization, because I think we all thought Yvonne Herrera uh, would be, in the mix. Um, but this maybe suggests that Pajes might uh, be getting a look as well. Yeah. And I, I think it's probably exactly what you said, which is a look, um, you know, for context, um, Herrera is uh, already on the 40 man roster. He's a year younger than Pajes. He's had uh, about a hundred points higher OPS at AAA this year. So, you know, I think we, uh, and, and, you know, my understanding is, you know, defensively, you know, still, you know, well, well thought of or well enough thought of. So it, it seems like we would still have to assume that Herrera is, you know, is the front runner there, but, but, but Pajes is, a you know, I think a legitimate contender for, uh, you know, for a, a catching position, um, you know, and I mean, Pajes is one year older than Herrera, but he's not old by any means either. So yeah, I agree that in, in some ways he was actually the most interesting name on this list to me. Yeah, I, I found his choice uh, interesting as well. Um, and I'm interested to see, you know, what uh, the other, what all of the pitchers give them uh, in the fall league. It's going to be a small sample size, but, you know, there are some, some frankly, uh, not very handsome ERAs on the list. And yeah. so I'm interested to see how this stuff plays at the more varied roster level where you get you know guys from multiple levels of the minors coming together well, like they'll have in the Arizona Fall League. Well Ben, I did take a look at the Fangraphs pages and looked at their FIPs and those are those are not real attractive as well. You've got Leahy at 5.40, Loudus at 4.87, Thomas at 4.34 and Hence at 1.59. <laughs> now obviously those are in some very different numbers of innings pitched and it's you know minor league levels and and etc cetera, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So take it with a grain of salt, but the bottom line is Leahy, Loudus and Thomas all are guys that you don't really look at them and say like, oh, they had a great minor league season or they had kind of like a breakthrough season. You know, they're guys that had, you know, pretty middling results anyway. So I'm with you. It's like, well, what is it, you know, what is it that they're looking for them to get out of this? It's it's an interesting question. Yeah. And, you know, some of it, again, you, you look back and, you know, is it just they want to get them a little bit bit of a higher innings pitch total to help grow that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of provide a step toward uh, more work next year? Yep. Um, or are they, you know, kind of giving guys an opportunity uh, to uh, increase their profile uh, within the organization? It, this is a, a very interesting list because of the, the names that are on it the high profile guys, and then some of the guys that just don't have that profile. So uh, it'll be interesting to see the Arizona fall league results and how these guys do. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Well, um, we are going to segue into some questions from listeners. Um, as always, we appreciate all these questions that come in. As I'm looking at the question document from here, uh, Ben, I see at the top our good friend Dan, who helps us out with social media and some some housekeeping things, has a note here to me that it's pronounced Palante because I have consistently said Payante here on the show and we get um, messages about that. And it's, I'm just a hundred percent wrong. And I don't know why I always say it, say it wrong. So I'm saying it out loud correctly now and hopes that that will stick. But uh, this is why it's, it's better to, to uh, write about the team than talk about the team because (laughs) oftentimes you will only see a player's name in writing for like a year or two before you hear it spoken. Yes. And you'll be like, Oh, I've been mispronouncing that. And this is an, uh, an example of that. Oh yeah. So many, so many big league call up days where you hear Danny Mac say it and you're like, Oh really? Well, that wasn't the direction I was going to go. So, um, (laughs) anyway, uh, our first question, Jason, um, asks, Cardinals postseason roster, they have some hard decisions to make, I think. How does Flaherty Mats fit in? Do they take starters as relievers who have been hurt? Ben, I don't think the decisions are all that hard. What do you think? Uh, no, I, I think right now uh, the the decision with Mats has been made for them. Yep. And yeah, and this, and this question came in before Mats was up, of course. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and I, I just think with the way Matt's is throwing, if he's healthy, he's your number one lefty yeah. uh, out of the bullpen, and there's just there's no two ways about that. Yeah, I think Flaherty is shaping up to maybe be a difficult choice, but again, with the way he has pitched, I just don't see him as having outperformed uh, any of the other starters. And so the question to me is, do you use him in the bullpen or do you just leave him off entirely? And I think that answer will come probably in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, it's basically an open tryout for, for all these guys uh, when it comes to those final pitching spots on the postseason roster. Yeah. And we have to shed two spots from the expanded September rosters at this point with who they have up now. I think you'd, you'd say it's Deluzio on the offensive side and, you know, call it Packy Naughton or Jake Woodford or somebody from that, um, you know, kind of class on the pitching side, um, you know, so that kind of takes care of that, you know, and that's about that. And yeah, offensively, um, you know, I don't see Juan Yepes coming up unless there's uh, an injury. Um, you know, if O'Neill gets healthy, then, you know, O'Neill, you know, comes up and rejoins the team, but obviously Burleson's up there and Burleson's not postseason eligible. So, um, so yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think I agree with you. Flaherty will probably be the most interesting of those kind of decisions they have to make. All right. Our next question comes from Jim at big Jim, 1923 and big Jim asks, how do you view Ali Marmal's first season as manager? How do you view his strengths and weaknesses as compared to the two mics? Mr. Godar, what do you think? I, you know, I feel like I've kind of said this before on the show and it hasn't really changed. I mean, I'm pretty much an A plus for Ali Marmol. Um, uh, you know, if we're going back and over the two mics, as the questioner asks here, um, you know, uh, Mike Matheny, terrible train wreck of a manager, nothing good there. Mike Schilt, really a pretty good manager. You know, I did not have major quibbles with Mike Schilt, but, you know, still some some 
some issues of, of inflexibility, like to kind of have his guys, et cetera. You know, Ollie has really just pushed that a little farther. I think especially, you know, the way that Ollie has um, utilized platoons, I think has been an exceptional change in this year's club, which is a little bit team construction, but I think is, is largely a manager who understands how to do that. And I, I really like Ollie's bullpen usage. I know there were parts of the season where people were like, you know, why isn't he getting Helsley out there more? Why isn't he doing this? He seems to just have had a really good understanding of what guys can do, what workloads they can handle. And we've had a, a, a largely healthy and effective bullpen as a result. What do you think, Ben? Uh, I agree. I think his bullpen usage has been good. I think his lineup usage has been good as well for the most part. Um, I think it's good that he is willing to shuffle things around and to play matchups in the way that he has. And we've talked about that a little bit. And then I also think it's good that he is not um, sticking with the lineup and is willing to make uh, mid-game substitutions to leverage a platoon split or leverage a, pl- a player's skill, whether uh, it's with the bat or with the glove, depending on the game situation and what the club needs. I think he's done a really good job at that. And one of the things that I like the most out of him, uh, when it comes to pitching, he has been very vocal uh, about the team needing more swing and miss capability uh, because they have a lot of pitch-to-contact guys and the team does need more swing and miss guys and a little bit less of a dependence on contact because the surest way to get a player out is to strike them out. Yeah. Um, if you're allowing balls in play, things can go sideways on you uh, because a player can reach base on an error or a misplay or, uh, or they might just hit weak contact to where there is no fielder. And so um, I think that has been an important voice as well as the pendulum kind of swings away from last season where they uh, doubled and tripled down on pitch to contact guys because they had too many walks and they had to eliminate those free base runners. And now, you know, uh, they have a manager who's been very vocal that we need more sure outs uh, in our rotation and in the bullpen. And I think that's really good to hear. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Drizzy Druster asks if Albert hits 700 at Bush, do you think it will be the loudest the stadium has been? Also, do you think the DeWitts already have a Pujols statue made? Ben, what do you think? This is an excellent question because the point of comparison is probably what? The the freeze triple? Y- yeah, or well, the freeze triple uh, or the freeze home run. Pretty much, uh, you know, yeah, three moments from that game six, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but so my my question is, how many people kind of went home early? Uh, oh, it was a world during. It was that, a World Series yeah. game. I don't. I hope not many went home early. I I wouldn't think very many. Uh, but I I feel like you're gonna have a lot more people um, there, and yeah. you also and the reason you have more people there is because of the ballpark village development. Yeah, and they have the tickets there across the street. True. And also I think that ballpark village development, including 
the one cardinal way with the giant electronic billboard, mm-hmm. the so-called luxury condos that have that Blade Runner, uh, DeWallet revenue generator uh, there on the side. Just, I think that'll help. just flashing the same like five video ads at you yeah. constantly while you're sitting in the green seats that you paid several hundred dollars for to watch the St. Louis Cardinals play baseball. Yeah, I know the sign you're talking about. <laughs> so I think that those will help also uh, push sound into the stadium a little bit more um, in the way that they suppress offense. They will also uh, increase the decibels of the player or of the fans while they're cheering the players. And in particular here, Pujols. Uh, the other thing is the anticipation factor uh, with this is so huge. You know, when Pujols laced that yeah. double, uh, earlier this week, and the crowd kind of groaned <laughs> before they were like, "Oh, a double! Yeah. Yay!" You know, we're, we, that's good. Right? Not as good as th- that's not what we wanted. But so, I feel like when this happens, and the vibe, I we really enjoyed it uh, when our family went down uh, and saw them play the Brewers, and I even made the comment. It the crowd is much louder for Pujols than either of the MVP candidates. And when he hits a home run, it is like a cathartic. We have missed out on doing this a couple hundred times because you left and we're going to get our money's worth now because you're, you, you are an all time great Cardinal. It's almost an opportunity to reaffirm fandom or something that's coming through. Uh, And it's just really something to be a part of because it is a very, enthusiastic emotional response from the fans uh, of the type that you don't see very often. And and it's really fun to be a part of. And I think it is, I think it is for these reasons, it will be the loudest it has been in the new Bush stadium. If Pujols hits his 700th home run there. And I really hope he does because he deserves that hometown crowd response. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'll just take the second part of the question there real quick, Ben. Do we think the DeWitts already have a Pujols statue made? Uh, years ago at Viva Albertos, I interviewed the guy who at the time made all the statues. I don't know if that same artist is still doing it. Um, so, but if he's not, I'm sure that they, they have a new, you know, artist that they always work with on this, but um, they're, they're, you know, process on those has been to only um, give those out to guys who are elected to the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame and only, you know, after they're elected. So that's where we had the Ted Simmons one come here. And just even from the Ted Simmons one, you you know, uh, it didn't take, you know, five years, you know, to turn around, turn that around. So um, I I think I I, they know they're going to do a pool hole statue um, and and he's such an all time great. Maybe they would unveil something early, but my guess is they'll, they'll wait. Uh, I agree. They're also frugal <laughs> with money. And I think, you know, a lot can happen between when a player is inducted into the hall of fame and when they retire. Yeah. And so, well, I, the, the I, reason I as, as evidenced by the fact that the reason I interviewed that artist was about the Mark McGuire statue that the team had made <laughs> early and has never unveiled. <laughs> Yes, 100% correct. And so I am not saying anything bad about Albert Pujols with this. I'm just saying you cannot eliminate the chance that that bad news could be made. And so I think that would motivate the DeWitts, especially after the sting of commissioning a Mark McGuire statue, 
that it would motivate them to hold off on having one made until it, the deal is sealed, so to speak, and Albert Pujols is going into the Hall of Fame. Yes. All right, moving on to the next question. Um, it comes from Sam Crawford, Crawfee25 on Twitter. He asks, or she asks, I guess I don't know uh, which Sam it might be. I've seen a few questions about what the loudest game the stadium has been, but what's the game that's had the most beers drank? Mr. Godar, uh, what do you think that game would be? Well, I did some research on this question, Ben. I appreciated this question as a, as a beer drinker myself. Um, and we, we don't know, although if there's anybody out there who works for the stadium or, or who has data, I would love, I would love a, an actual answer to this. But I'm going to throw out a few possibilities, Ben, um, that I think could be the day. Now, um, one that jumped to mind for me, August 6th of this year, the Saturday game against the New York Yankees, that was the largest crowd ever reported at the stadium, 48,581. So most people ever, most beers ever, certainly a possibility. It's also Joe Torre bobblehead night. It's a solid giveaway. That's, you know, a giveaway that's going to appeal to people who might also, you know, drink beer, right? It wasn't like... Um, you know, National Abstinence Day or something like that. I don't know. Um, not that you can't be abstinent and not drink beer or whatever. Anyway, uh, however, that also got me thinking about the day after that, Sunday, August 7th. And I don't know if you remember this fact about that game, Ben, but that game was four hours and 25 minutes long. Now, I, I double-checked this with some sources today. They stopped beer sales uh, in the seventh inning and they do not restart them even in an extra inning game because that was one thing I thought about was, well, has there ever been a, you know, a really long extra inning game that they might have done that? So I think it really comes down to game time. So that game, there was probably a longer duration that they were selling beer than, you know, at almost any other time. Also had a huge crowd, uh, over 46,000 there. Um, uh, the other one, I'm going to throw a wild card out at you, Ben. May 23rd, 2012. There was an exhibition soccer game between Man City and Chelsea. At the time, that was the largest crowd at the stadium. It was 48,263. My sister Becky was at that game. And here's the thing. Uh, first of all, I don't think it's a playoff game because playoff games, you, people are interested enough in the game. They're not going to the concession stand. But uh, a uh, exhibition soccer game with a crowd that big, I think there could have been a lot of beer drank that night. So those are my three guesses. I think those are excellent guesses, um, and and that Yankees one I think makes a lot of sense. But you also have to wonder with the cost of beer, how you know it's gotten more and more expensive to go to a game uh, and to drink beer at a game. And so I also wonder about that. You know, are people drinking less beer at the games now that it's more expensive? There are just so many factors in play, Ben, uh, with the information that we have available i i think it's that yankees game that's going to be my bet especially after the pandemic yeah i feel like people are more likely to be like hey there's a beer i'm going to drink it uh because i'm out at this game and who knows i might not be able to come to the game oh i definitely started drinking more during the pandemic and then had a hard time drinking less so that's true for me (laughs) uh all right it's almost like there's something about it yeah right well you know uh, all right, our next, uh, this is a combo question um, from Cards Talk. Uh, Cards Talk asks, has the pepper grinder reached its maximum size 
Or could we possibly see a human-sized pepper grinder before the season ends? And Ben Wheeler, kind of a related question, if the Cardinals go deep in the playoffs, do they get a progressively larger pepper grinder for each round? Ben, what do you say? Well, I'm going to steal Alex Fritz's joke uh, from Twitter because it was so good. And he tweeted that if Lars Newtbar keeps this up, we're going to have an Air Bud situation where he gets a game-winning hit using a pepper grinder <laughs> because the umpires will, they will consult the rule book and determine that there is no rule that prohibits a player from hitting with a pepper in, grinder. In his boxer briefs. Um, yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, I, I, I love the pepper grinder. I think it's a lot of fun. I don't think it has probably yet evolved to its largest size. I think it's still probably going to get a little bit bigger. Well, I I think we're, I think we're getting up to like probably the largest size, just sort of like commercially produced pepper grinder that you can go to like restaurant supply store.com and order. And so where this could really push through to the other side is if someone finds a novelty pepper grinder and or pays uh, an artisan to create an even larger pepper grinder. That's when we'll, we'll really have crossed the Rubicon and, and really the sky's the limit at that point. And with the resources uh, some of the players in that clubhouse have available to them, namely money. Yes. Um, we, we cannot rule that. I mean, if you have made hundreds of million dollars playing a child's game, you owe it to the world to, to fund that kind of nonsense. Oh, 100%. I 100% agree. All right. Uh, moving on to our next question. Uh, it comes from Ryan DeWerf at Durf53. And Ryan asks, when the Cardinals win the World Series, will Austin Romine get a ring? And the answer is, unfortunately, yes, because everyone who played for the team at any point during the season gets a ring. Um, every few years, you'll have a jobber who spent time with both teams in the World Series that season. And so they'll be in a position where uh, they're going to you know, get a ring uh, either way. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, Austin Romine will be uh, getting a ring when the Cardinals win the World Series. Uh, this October. Uh, Then the last question we have here uh, is another combo question. Sam Crawford asks, would you build two individual statues for Yachty and Wayno or one big one? And uh, Trev asks, easy one, should we adopt the battery in all caps going forward for Yachty and Wayno, like as a nickname, the battery? So I threw those together kind of both about honoring Yachty and Wayno. What do you think? Um, I think that they will each get their own statue because they're both going to make the Hall of Fame and they're going to make the Hall of Fame in different seasons. Mm-hmm. So uh, because I think Wainwright it, is going to come back next year. And the reason I think that is John Mosellock gave that interview and talked about how getting to 200 wins, he believes, would get Wainwright a, a second look from some voters and, and I agree with that. And he was talking about it in a way that, that made it sound to me like, you know, it's not a done deal, but it sounds like people are at least talking about Adam Wainwright coming back. Yep. And so that makes me believe uh, that there's 
there's some discussion and there's with the way the roster is, there's no reason for the Cardinals not to bring him back if he's, if he wants to come back. And also Adam Wainwright has given the quotes, like it would be weird to be someplace else, uh, you know, talking about him and Yachty. And he said something along the lines of we belong here and here being uh, St. Louis with the Cardinals. Yeah. And so with all those things taken together, I believe that, uh, Adam Wainwright is going to come back next year. And I think uh, he is going to make it into the Hall of Fame. And I think both he and Yachty will, and they'll each get their own statue. Well, and the interesting part of that is, um, again, the the team has said that their official policy is that the retired numbers on the outfield wall and the statues are for baseball Hall of Famers only. There are some retired numbers that predates that policy that were non-Hall of, you know, uh, non-Hall of Famers. But that's been their policy for a good uh, 20 to 30 years now. So that has always raised the question, you know, would Adam Wainwright have a retired number and a statue? And, and Ben, you're exactly right. Whereas it would have seemed preposterous that Adam Wainwright was a Hall, you know, very good, but just we weren't really having a conversation about is Adam Wainwright a Hall of Famer? This late career renaissance has has made it a, a possibility, you know, and, and especially if he pitches another one or two years. Um, so that could happen. But I also have to say that it, it has felt to me that if the club were to break their rule, their baseball hall of fame rule, uh, you know, being required for either of those honors, Adam Wainwright is probably the guy that they would do that for. So I think I could foresee a situation where even if he's not elected to the baseball hall of fame, or it's still uncertain if he maybe will be someday or not, they still, um, you know, give him that statue honor. I agree with you. They should be individual statues. It's a, you know, honor their individual play, but I do think it would be pretty cool if they kind of position them in such a way. So it, you know, looked as if, uh, you know, uh, Wayno was pitching to Yachty or, you know, there, there was at least kind of a, some kind of a connection between the two of them. Cause it is such a unique connection they've had as players. And there is the possibility, you know, if they, if we get down the line and, you know, Wainwright does not make the Hall of Fame, I could see them doing something to commemorate whatever their final number winds up being yeah. for starts as a battery, yeah. um, you know, and doing a special commemoration of that, um, yeah. you know, with a, uh, you know, a, a statue of the two of them that, that has that number in included, you know, kind of in the area where they uh, place it around. Yeah. The and, and, and just to be clear in terms of the Cardinals policy, that's the Cardinals stated policy. They can change that anytime they want, right? Bill DeWitt can do whatever he wants. So it doesn't take an act of Congress for that to be changed. Like they could just change their mind. And frankly, they only articulated that as the policy around the time of the Maguire situation, because they were getting questions about putting up a Maguire statue, et cetera. And so I think part of the reason they framed that policy was to give themselves a little bit of a delineation that explained why they weren't uh, honoring Mark Maguire. So anyway, Ben, we have reached um, near the end of the episode here. Um, and we're going to be back with folks next Monday, I believe. Uh, in that time, what are you going to be watching for? Uh, I am going to 
be watching for how many plate appearances Paul DeYoung gets uh, as we get down the home stretch uh, of the season. Uh, his numbers have, uh, and it's it's been well documented, his numbers have fallen off uh, quite a bit since his initial hot streak that we were also happy to see. Um, and I'm interested to see, recognizing that players are going to maybe get a little bit more time off to get them fresh uh, for the postseason. Um, but I'm interested to see if it suggests anything about uh, what the team might do with the young heading into next season. So I'm going to be watching. That. All right. Uh, I am going to be watching uh, Stephen Matz. Uh, and, and we've already seen one very good outing from Stephen Matz. But as much as uh, I'm watching the outings themselves, I'm really interested to see um, how much rest does he need between outings in terms of day off? Um, how many innings does he throw? Um, and uh, just to get a sense of how might the Cardinals uh, utilize him in the postseason, because I do expect that he uh, he could be and will be uh, a weapon for them. Uh, ben, do you have an off day recommendation for folks? Yes, uh, Fangraphs uh, had a post up. Um, you know, as Cardinal fans, you may be aware uh, that um, the Cardinals' first baseman, Paul Goldschmidt, is having a pretty good season. <laughs> and uh, amongst his accomplishments is a pursuit of the Triple Crown. And friend of the podcast, Dan Zimborski, uh, has a fun post up there uh, that looks at the probability of a Triple Crown winner this year. And he published that on uh, September 16th. It's how likely is a Triple Crown winner this season? And I thought uh, it was a, a fun post and I recommend it to folks. Oh, excellent. I actually haven't read that one. So I will throw that on my reading list. Um, I have an old chestnut that I'm going to recommend for folks, but um, newly relevant. I recommend folks read uh, the article Skunk in the Outfield, How the Most Epic Trick Play in Baseball History Broke Baseball uh, by Sam Miller at ESPN.com. It was, I think, initially published back in 2014. Uh, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because uh, this really fascinating deep dive article that Sam Miller did about a trick play in a, a state high school championship game had to do with the baseline rule. And of course, this came up Saturday night um, on the uh, game winning play when uh, Goldie grounded it to the whatever you call the guy standing near third base when there's five infielders. And uh, Andrew Kisner uh ran through the middle of the infield and the ball ricocheted off him and, and he scored. And, you know, the broadcasters and on Twitter, frankly, Ben, it was like at every youth baseball game I've ever been at when there's a, a question about someone leaving the baseline and, you know, like 30 dads jump up with an interpretation of the baseline rule um, and they're all wrong. Because <laughs> um, the baseline rule, the baseline rule is super weird. And I'll be honest, I didn't really know it or understand it until I read this Sam Miller article um, about this crazy trick play, which involves a, ru a runner on first base with another runner on third base. And the runner on first base takes their lead, not a few steps off first base, but like out into right field. 
Um, and you think, oh, that's out of the baseline. No, there is no baseline until someone's trying to tag a runner. And at that point, they can only move directly towards either base. It's very weird, but you, you almost need this completely insane version of the play to, to understand the rule. It's just a super fun article. So I would recommend that as, uh, for folks. It is a really good article. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and I might reread it because it's been a while uh, since I've read it, and I think that's a really good recommendation. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. Um, I think we've reached the end. Anything else for folks before we wrap it up? Uh, no. Uh, go Cardinals, and hopefully we'll be celebrating Albert Pujols as a member of the 700 Home Run Club the next time we record Absolutely, which I have confirmed is next Monday. We'll have a show next Monday and next Thursday. We've got two off days next week. So we'll be seeing you then for another Cardinals Off Day podcast. Go Cardinals!